And I'll invite you to find 1 Corinthians in your Bibles. And we will pick up where we left off last week. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 24. If you recall, last week my sermon had just gotten too big for one Sunday. So I split it in half. Uh, Not really in half. I did the first two of three points last week. And this is kind of the, the finale of the passage. This is the third point this Sunday. And we need to begin on somewhat of a serious note to get the force of this passage, to understand it. So put your thinking caps on for a moment. Crank up your imagination. I want you to imagine that it is years from now, many, many years from now, and you are in a, at an advanced age. The signs of aging have become evident in your body, the way you feel, and what your doctor says to you. Years ago, you were diagnosed with heart disease. You know that this is just a, a fact of your life now. And one day, you're sitting in your home, and you begin to feel a tightness in your chest and a pain radiating between your shoulder blades down your left arm. And you know, based on everything your doctor has talked to you about, you know what is happening. You're having a heart attack. And as the course of this heart attack continues, you know instinctively that this is it. That this is the end. Now, still there in that moment, I want you to ask yourselves a couple of questions. Is this the ending of your life or the culmination of your life? Are you right now in the process of losing everything that you hold dear? Or are you about to fully experience everything that you hold dear? Is this a horrible interruption to all of your pursuits? And are you seeing your deepest dreams dissolve? Or are they about to materialize at last? Have you reached a dead end or have you reached a doorway? Now, the answers to these questions depends on your belief about the resurrection. The Christian belief that when Jesus Christ returns, his people will be raised from their graves, raised from the dead, to a new life in God's presence. Do we really believe this? Last week, we saw that this doctrine of the resurrection makes sense logically, it makes sense theologically, it makes sense chronologically. And today, in verses 24 through 28, we'll see that the resurrection is essential because the kingdom is coming. The resurrection is an essential Christian belief because the kingdom is coming. It is, the, it is essential for the culmination of all that God has been doing in this world and in humanity and in your life if you are a Christian. 
So we'll begin verse 24, the first point. Really, there's only one point in this sermon, a one-point sermon this week. The resurrection is essential for the completion of the kingdom project. And I'll explain what I mean as we read these verses. So let's read together verse 24. Paul has been teaching about the resurrection of God's people. Verse 24, he talks about what happens next after the resurrection. Then comes the end. The end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the passage begins back in verse 24, then comes the end. So I'm curious, what comes to your mind when you think about the end? You know, if you've read Revelation or if you've seen apocalyptic movies, it's probably grand-scale catastrophe and mayhem. But for a moment, let's just narrow the scope of our vision to just what this passage tells us about the end. And we see that right here, the Bible teaches that the end is Jesus delivering to God the Father the kingdom. The kingdom project has been completed, and Jesus is handing it over to his Father after the resurrection. All of his enemies have been destroyed. All the competing rulers and authorities and powers have been subjugated. Now, that language is somewhat general. There's good arguments to be made that those... those, um, Rulers and authorities and powers in verse 24 are referring to the spiritual forces. There's good arguments to be made that it's referring to human rulers and authorities and powers. And then here within the text, there's good arguments that it just means anything that's set against the rule and authority and power of Jesus Christ because death itself is included. And I tend to think it covers all of that. That Jesus will complete his rule over the kingdom. And hand this kingdom over to God the Father. Now, over the summer, some of you know, my kids are already back in school. They started back earlier than most kids. Over the summer, Elias had a project. I didn't ask him if it was okay to mention this project. Is this okay? (laughs) It's too late now. It was for his English class. He had to read a book, had to write a summary of each chapter, and a book review, and then do a project. And he chose for his project what he would hand in and present, a Lego model of the house uh, that had a central place in the story and the characters in the sort of the front yard of it. And I have to say it was pretty impressive. I know I'm his father, so I'm biased automatically, but I think he did a really good job on it. And so I saw he he worked on it. He worked at it for quite a while and got it prepared. And then uh, first day of school, maybe the second day of school, took it with him to school and with his book bag, lunchbox, everything, grabbed his project and ran it into the school and handed it in. That's the whole story. Some of you are probably expecting the story to end up with him dropping it and it destroying, but no, nothing like that. He went in and he presented his completed project and it was done. You've had projects that you've had to work on and complete. I have. We all know what that's like. This is one way to understand what Jesus is up to in this world. He has a project. The Father sent him to secure the kingdom. He's working on his project, and in the end, he'll complete the project, and he'll turn it in to God the Father. That's what it says. 
Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. If you remember when Jesus began his ministry, do you remember his first sermon? I can't really remember my first sermon anymore. The first sermon I ever preached actually wasn't here. It was actually at Long's Grove. Uh, Well, no, that's not true. My very, very first one was at Trinity Baptist Church long ago. I'm sure it would be very embarrassing to hear that sermon again now, but... We have Jesus' first sermon recorded, and one of the recordings of it is in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And I'll read to you his opening line. Do you remember what he said when he first came on the scene in his public ministry? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So when Jesus began, it was about the kingdom. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's time, I'm putting together the kingdom. Of God, it is at hand right now. As Jeff mentioned in his testimony, as Christians, what's the antidote to worry? Seek first the kingdom of God. You're a part of the kingdom project now. You're not like the others in the world who are not citizens of the kingdom who need to worry about what they'll eat and drink and wear. Seek first the kingdom. Your king will take care of all those needs. In the end, Passage recorded in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John is given this apocalyptic vision of, of many things, including last things. And in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, this is what he sees. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne It's where a king sits, the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Jesus is working on the kingdom project. That's what he's doing. The best way to understand what he's doing in your life is to remember that his priority is the kingdom project. He's building, he's consolidating his rule one new citizen at a time with those who are being saved from every tribe, language, nation, people group. He's consolidating his rule. And and these citizens are popping up across all the tribes and kingdoms and nations of the world throughout history. And at his resurrection, he will gather them together and the kingdom project will be complete. And there'll be people from Europe and sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. People from Native American tribes and African tribes and Amazon tribes. There'll be people who have, speak English and who speak Korean and who speak French. There'll be, and it's not just, this is something that occurred to me preparing for this sermon. This diversity of Jesus' kingdom isn't just people from all these different places. It's people from all these different times. So there'll be people from the times of our founding fathers of America, along with people from uh, like Greek slaves from ancient times, along with millennials with their funny hats and their facial hair. All these believers from all these different cultures consolidated together under King Jesus. And when he completes the kingdom project, he hands it in to the Father. Churches are like embassies of the kingdom here and now. A man named Jonathan Lehman wrote at great length about that, and it's really helped me to think about the local church. 
We comprise an embassy of the kingdom of God here and now. Only this embassy isn't representing a foreign kingdom, it's representing a future kingdom. Here and now. And though it may seem like this kingdom is somehow less legitimate than current earthly kingdoms or nations like America, it's actually more legitimate because this kingdom is eternal. This kingdom will have no end. It transcends all the earthly kingdoms. You know, Rome itself fell and ended. The Roman Empire. Every human kingdom will eventually fall, but not the kingdom of God. See, the Corinthians were denying the resurrection. They were beginning to believe that there was no such thing as a resurrection. And so Paul is saying to them, you saying there's no resurrection is completely disregarding the kingdom project. Don't you remember what Jesus is working on here? His end goal is a living embodied people to present to God so that God can say to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. We don't just have this Christian hope in this life only. It's all pointing forward to the future when everything that God has been working on is completed. So the resurrection has to be true for any of this to be true. Because Jesus' end goal isn't for you to feel more comfortable here in this world and enjoy these worldly pleasures without guilt and shame. His end goal is to collect a kingdom of people submitted to his rule. We, like the Corinthians, are tempted to disregard the kingdom project. To live our lives as though there's some other big goal that God is after. We're tempted to build our own little kingdoms. Our homes to be our own little castles. And we're tempted to gather our treasures to us and just be our own little kings to ourselves. And we want God to help us with that. And we get frustrated with him when he's not helping us to establish our rule over our little kingdoms. We have to remember that's not what he's about. He's establishing the kingdom. I think we do sometimes long for the kingdom as we should, though, but I just don't know if we always connect the dots from how we're feeling to our desire for the kingdom to be made complete. But every time you feel that discomfort in this world, when you see just the wretchedness and the darkness and the sin, and you think, why is it this way? Why is it so messed up? That is your longing for the king to come back and complete the kingdom. You know, that's the, the feeling that Meredith had when she was with the kids at Redbox trying to pick out a movie for Friday night. And there at eye level for my little children were these horrific images for some of the movies. Horror movies and, and just dark, sadistic movies. Why is it this way? Why can't we check out at the grocery store without borderline pornography staring our children in the face? Why is it this way? When will it be made right? It'll be made right when Jesus returns and completes the kingdom project. And all the rulers and authorities and powers at work in this world that make it this way will be destroyed at last. We long for it when we sense our own weakness, our fleshly weakness. Why am I so vulnerable to this temptation or that temptation? Why do I say these things that I regret a moment later? That's a longing for things to be made right within ourselves. And that will happen upon the resurrection 
to new life with Jesus Christ firmly enthroned as the king. That's what all human history is moving toward. We're, we're like ambassadors far from home. If you, if you imagine that you were an ambassador and you got sent by, you were an ambassador from America and you got sent to some foreign land where the culture was just very different, even contrary to everything that you are used to. Imagine how much that would wear on you over time. How much you would long to get home to slice an apple pie with vanilla ice cream on it or you know, whatever you associate with home. Well, that's sort of our life here in this world. You know, it's hard work. We've got a job to do for a period of time. It's temporary. This isn't home. Our home isn't a geographical distance away. It's a time distance away. It's in the future. But we'll get there after the resurrection. So the resurrection is essential to what we believe. We will grow to see reality through this lens more and more as we mature together in Christ. We'll grow to see our goals align with the goals of Jesus Christ more and more. Things we used to hold dear will start to seem less valuable and the kingdom objectives will seem more valuable over time. So the resurrection is essential for the completion of the kingdom project. To put it another way, verses 27 and 28, the resurrection is essential for God to be all in all. Let's read these last two verses of our passage. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. That's quoting from an Old Testament passage, a psalm. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. This language can be hard to follow, but basically what he's saying is God has put everything under Jesus' feet. He has established Jesus as king. He's put everything under Jesus' rule and authority except for one thing, and that is himself, God himself. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. All right, did you get all that? That's a, a pretzel of a thought to untangle. We say, when he's done, when Jesus is done and he's consolidated his rule, he is going to submit that to the Father and he's going to submit himself to the Father and everything is going to come under the authority of God himself. And then the last seven words of the passage sums up the end goal of everything that God has been doing all along. That God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. The end goal of God is that he himself would be all in all. That's his goal with creation. That's his goal with Jesus' incarnation. That's his goal with Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection. That's his goal with your salvation. That's his goal with our sanctification. And that's his goal with our resurrection, that God would be all in all. Now, as we begin to see reality, according to this, things will begin to make more sense. His responses to our prayers will make more sense. Our lives will make more sense. 
God's goal is that he would be all in all. Now, what does this mean for God to be all in all? I found this quote from a theologian that he put it very, I thought very well, very poetically. I want to read it to you. But commenting on this passage, he wrote, It looks as though God intends to flood the universe with himself. As though the universe was designed as a receptacle. The world is beautiful, not just because it hauntingly reminds us of its creator, but because it is pointing forward. It is designed to be filled, flooded, and drenched in God. As a chalice is beautiful, not least because of what we know it is designed to contain. Or as a violin is beautiful, not least because we know the music of which it is capable. I think of the image that comes to my mind is, you ever go to the beach with your children and they want you to blow up a float? And not just like a a round donut inner tube, but a more intricate float that has shapes. And you just work and you work and you inflate and you inflate, and, but you realize you've only inflated one compartment of it and there's seven other compartments that have the little nozzle that you have to blow up. So you clip that in and you get another one and you, more and more you fill and inflate and it takes shape. I think that's sort of what we're experiencing now and what will be completed in the end. Through each local church, each Christian, he's, he's filling parts of creation with himself, with his rule, as you and I subsume under his leadership, as churches do, as as it spreads, as the gospel spreads, more of it it takes shape. The kingdom begins to take shape and form. But in the end, Jesus will complete it and it will be fully formed. It will be fully filled. The earth will be filled with his glory, filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is with water. That's where it's all headed. The resurrection is essential to the kingdom project's completion when Jesus will establish comprehensive rule and submit his assignment to the Father, securing the eternal future in which God is all in all. This is the vision. This is God's vision. Is it our vision? The more it becomes our vision, the more death will lose its sting and the more resurrection will become our shared hope. It will guide our decisions. It will lessen the pains of living in this temporary assignment that we have as ambassadors here. It will put our failures into perspective. It will give us a vision for our lives, our families, our church, how we spend our money, what we devote our time to, what we instill in our children and our grandchildren. God will be all in all. That's the vision. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into what you have in store and what you have planned. Please help us to stay on task as your ambassadors here. Lord, please help us to grow and mature as Christians. Help us to be good citizens of the kingdom now in preparation for the end. In Jesus' name, amen.